0: We're right in the middle of a, a series, and Jeff kind of referenced it a few minutes ago, um, called Counterculture. And we're looking at, um, for the month of June, we looked at kind of what it's like to live in a, a world kind of hostile to your faith. And then over the last couple of weeks, and for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about specific issues. And ask the question, how do we interact with those as people who believe in Jesus, who follow Christ? And so we're going to take another one of those issues today. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to Ephesians chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, uh, the scripture we'll be talking about will be up on the screen, both on the big screens and on this one, and so you can follow along there. But uh, uh, today we're going to talk about a, a sensitive issue, a difficult issue for me, perhaps one of the most difficult issues, and I'll kind of explain that. As we go through, but an issue that is vital to God's people and vital to moving forward with God's agenda in the society in which we live. So before we do that, I want to ask a quick question. All right. And just so you know, this is a safe place. Okay, this is a place where we're not going to have judgment or condemnation. And so I'm about to ask a question I want you to answer honestly and just just know that you're going to be accepted regardless of your answer. Okay, how many of you here are scab pickers? Scab pickers, how many of you pick your scabs? Let me see. Y'all, y'all thought another question was coming, right? right. Everybody, how many, how many of you do not pick your scabs? Let me see. Y'all are missing out on life, all right? So this is a scab. Now, what's a scab? What, what is it? What's the purpose of a scab? It's to heal, right? To help you heal. Now, let me just be real kind of honest with you. I was very gracious and merciful to you today. Because if you just Google scab and look at images... There is some nasty stuff out there, all right? There's one guy that took a picture of his scab half off. I just wish I did not see that. I cannot unsee it though, all right? And so a scab is a form. It's, it's platelets and cells from your body that form this hard barrier in order that uh, your body can heal. So a cut, a wound can heal. I, I usually get scabs um, after I play one game of softball because sometime in softball I slide or fall or tumble and it scrapes up my leg and so you get scabs all right so here's the question what happens for for those of us that are scab pickers in the room I'm Lyle I'm a scab picker all right what happens when you pick a scab too early it bleeds right and so this appearance is there like, oh, it might be getting better and it's been there a day or two. I think everything's good. And so you start picking at it, picking, picking, right? Getting visual images there. And as you pick, you pick up. And those of you that are scab pickers, you know, there comes a point when it's the point of no return and you see that blood start to trickle. You're like, ah, oh, I got to start all over with this whole process, right? It feels like as a society over the last several months... We've been picking at a scab we thought was healed or close to it, and it's not anywhere close. We thought the healing was happening. We thought the healing was there, and we had some incidents that, more than incidences, tragedies, that made us pick the scab. And what we found was that we're not as nearly close to healing or wholeness as we thought. I can just say the names. Ferguson, Missouri. Eric Garland. Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The debate over the Confederate battle flag. It's almost like as a society we somehow thought we had moved past all of that. Or at least we're on the right track. Now, let me rephrase that, okay? Because that's that's really kind of not true for some parts of society and for large parts of society. As white evangelical Americans, we thought we had moved past a lot of this. And we haven't. Now, I grew up, um, I was born in 1976. And so I was born past um, the civil rights legislation and the civil rights marches and um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Um, speeches and marches on Washington. I was uh, post-segregation. I grew up in integrated schools my entire life. Some in this room grew up not that way. You grew up in segregated schools. And there was this kind of understanding that once that all kind of got put back together, things would begin to move forward. And, And honestly, we are in a different place than we were in the 30s and 40s and 50s. But I'm not sure we're as far along as we hope. I grew up in northwest Tennessee. And to think that just because civil rights... Uh, legislation had passed, and just because um, integration had happened in the schools, to think that there weren't racial issues is naive and untrue. I went to a conference earlier this year. Southern Baptist Convention sponsored our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the president of which is Dr. Russell Moore, uh, held and hosted. And it was about how we as Southern Baptists and we as evangelical Christians in general uh, need to do a better job at racial reconciliation. In case you didn't get it, that's what we're talking about today, all right? How we need to do a better job with that. And Dr. Moore started his particular sermon with a story that uh, should sound completely unfamiliar but sounded like something could have happened where I grew up. Dr. Moore grew up in southern uh, Mississippi. Actually, he says closer to Louisiana than Mississippi, so he was more um, Bayou than, than, than northern Mississippi. He was, he was kind of a New Orleans kind of culture around where he lived, but he went to a Southern Baptist church there, and um, back in that day, and still to this day in some ways, but back in our day especially, I, I don't think they could take attendance in my church unless you brought your offering envelope. Now, sometimes people brought offering envelopes without any offering in it because you had to check off what you had done that week, all right? And so read the Bible daily. How many of you remember those? Okay. And so when I was a kid, that's what you did. Dr. Moore talks about that. He went and you might just take a little bit. And he took, he says, I remember 50 cents this particular day to like first grade or second grade Sunday school class. He said, I went into Sunday school and there was a substitute teacher that day. And the substitute teacher did not know you have to take up the offering at the beginning of class, because if you don't, the kids play with it the entire time. Right. Are, Are you here this morning? Are you there? Okay. And so um, as he's doing that, he said, as I'm playing with it, somehow one of the quarters got out of the envelope and ended up, as Dr. Moore says, in my mouth. And the teacher, seeing that the quarter is now in his mouth, must have thought, I've got to say something to him to get him to get that out of his mouth as quickly as possible. And so she looked at him and said, get that out of your mouth. For all you know, some colored man touched it. Now... I don't think the teacher went in that morning wanting to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. But she did. And just to be honest, that's the kind of environment I grew up in. Northwest Tennessee is a place where racial tension is still evident. It's evident all across the country, but in some ways, western Tennessee, northern Mississippi, there's there's tension that gets to the surface a little more. I remember distinctly growing up in a place where, um, you know, we'd go to church on Sunday and we would sing, um, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I remember distinctly singing that and then going, being at a function with some of my friends and their dads, some of their dads who were deacons in my church, and them having a detailed discussion about, at that moment, the Dyersburg City Schools where I grew up, was trying to decide whether or not Martin Luther King Jr. birthday would be a holiday that school would be let out. And I remember those dads, deacons in our church, leaders in our church, saying, if they dismiss school on that day, my kid will sit on the steps of the school in protest. I remember being in eighth grade, and I was at Dyersburg Middle School. And Dyersburg Middle School, had uh, we had an intramural volleyball tournament. And uh, it was a group of guys. You've got yourself a group of guys at the intramural tournament. And the really cool thing was we did those after school for like a week. And then on Friday of the week we did it, the championship game between the two top teams was going to be played at t- like 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon for the whole school to come and see. This really cool thing. Everybody's wanting to do it. And so I got a group of five guys together and we, we went and we played and we were good. We were really good. We ended up uh, playing in the championship game. So in spite of me, we played well. All right. And I remember we were so excited about it. So we knew the team on the other side. and We thought it was going to be great because they were really good and we it was going to be a tough test. But we were ready and we got called and said, hey, we need all the players in the game to be here an hour early. That's cool. We're going to meet with the principal. I thought we're about to get one of those, you know, like locker room speeches. Go, you know, go out there and do your best and represent us well. And he called us in. And I still remember to this day the scene. We were underneath the gym in the locker rooms. And there was a center room in the locker room. And he called the two teams together. And he sat us down. And we got a 30-minute lecture on how we were to behave during the game. See, what I didn't tell you is that. My team was me and five other Caucasians, white guys, and the other team were six African-Americans. And the principal thought that if any crossword or any look was given, it could start a fight in our school. I remember going out and playing. I really don't remember who won the game. That probably means we lost. I don't remember. But I remember in that gym, the distinct feeling I got in that gym was not that we were one school coming together to watch an athletic competition together. It was like we were two distinct schools cheering against each other. Now, as a pastor in West Tennessee, small community, Ripley First Baptist Church, we had a crusade happen. A guy came in and spoke every night. And on Wednesday of that night, we had planned for a youth night of the crusade. And on Tuesday, he, because we were in, you know, it's Lauderdale County, smaller school. We had one high school in the whole um, kind of area, Ripley High School. And we could get in and do a program for people. We just couldn't mention Jesus or do anything explicitly, overtly religious, but we could go in and do a program. And so they called a full assembly of everybody in the high school You did the middle school as well. We did middle school and high school, and this guy named Kelly Green was there, and he did the program. He had this program about leadership and courage and lots of stuff. But then at the end of it, we passed out invitations to everybody in the middle school and high school to come for free pizza on Wednesday night, and the only cost for the pizza was having to listen to Kelly Green speak again. And so I remember being so excited about that. And we heard some people talking like we could have a lot of people here. Now, First Baptist Ripley, we had about 300 people that came regularly in attendance. And so we started counting the night we had pizza. We had to go back and get pizza several times. We had like 450 kids there. Man, I was over the moon excited. 450 kids, they're going to hear the gospel. I know Kelly Green; he presented it in a very a thoughtful but a very clear way. I'm so excited about this. We've been building for this for, for years, literally. I can't believe this is going to happen. This is awesome. Now, I walk into the sanctuary, and I walk in. I remember seeing a sea of multi-ethnic colored church. 450 that was almost evenly divided between African-American and white. And I remember just being like, this is awesome. This is so exciting. I can guarantee you there had never been over 200 African-Americans in First Baptist Church, Ripley, Tennessee before. That was the history of that church. I knew that. I was so excited about it. I walked out the back door and I went out the back because I thought, maybe other kids come and I want to be here to greet them." them. I'm glad we are here. And I got out to the back door and there was a deacon standing there waiting for me. And the deacon standing there waiting for me just looked me in the eye and he was an older deacon and he said to me, if I would have known you were going to invite every and then he used a word I will not use. In this town to this church tonight, I would not have come. That's the environment I grew up in. And I wish that was unique to me, but it's not. And that's why when incidents like Ferguson happens, when incidents like Charleston, South Carolina happens, my heart is torn. My heart is grieved. Because I'm afraid that as churches... We've allowed the sort of environment for those kind of things to propagate and to grow. Because we have not directly addressed this issue in a way that brings clarity from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today, and let me tell you, just, just this week, given all that background Um, I've had conversations with people from first service, people getting ready for this service. Just that's my background. That's who I am. And that means that there are things that I have to fight through that I have to ask God for empowerment for, even as I prepare to speak, because Satan tries to say, you are the least, the least likely to speak to this issue. You are the most unqualified to speak to this issue. And yet the scripture teaches me that I am pastor of this church and as leader of this church, I must speak to this issue. I want to ask two questions today, and and then I want to give us some some practical stuff. The first question I want to ask is because I think this is not a political issue. This is not a race issue at its core. It's not an issue of socioeconomics. At the core for the church, this is a gospel issue. I want to answer the question today first. What is the gospel? What what are we talking about? Why, Why does this matter when it comes to the gospel? Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse one, says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming Gentiles that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written Briefly, and we're going to stop just there for just a second because I I want you to understand something. What Paul's going to talk about here for a lot uh, for the rest of this, this really this chapter, but specifically for these verses we're going to look at today. He's going to talk consistently about this concept of a mystery. And it's important for us to understand what he means by that, because otherwise we'll miss the point. You see, Paul, the word mystery for Paul, is not like we use it. When I when I hear the word mystery, I think of mystery novels or mystery shows. I think it's like Sherlock Holmes or CSI or, in, you know, shows where people are trying to figure stuff out. It's a mystery. We don't know. It's suspenseful. Like it's, there are clues there. We've got to follow the clues to find the revelation at the end. But that's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about here, this mystery is something that was hidden that has now been revealed. For Paul, it's not this thing we've got to go out there and find. It's that it's already been shown and we have to understand it. The reason it's a mystery is because it wasn't revealed for a long, long time. What's also important to understand is anytime you see this mystery here in this part, Paul uses the word revelation with it because his point is we would have never known what we're about to know, what we're about to explain, what he's about to write to us. We would have never known that except that God revealed it in the gospel of Jesus Christ and said this is part of what it means to follow him. When you read this. You'll perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and others generation as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Now, again, he talks about this mystery and he's been talking about that. We need to understand the book of Ephesians is one letter. It's not five, six separate letters. And so in chapter 1, he's talking about this mystery that has been revealed and that Jesus Christ is in all and above all and through all and that we are given a place in the heavenlies because of what Christ has done in choosing us and allowing us to be a part of his family and dying for our sins. And so part of the mystery is that everything is summed up, is given, is done in Christ Jesus. He's saying that other generations didn't have that, but we do. And then he says this, This is the mystery. This is it. He tells us this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery that Paul is talking about is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means equal parts. That means exactly the same. It means they get what we get members of the same body. This is not some separate thing that Christ is going out and saving the Gentiles and He's saving the Jews and they're two different things and that they are partakers in the promise. They have everything we have. This mystery is that God has summed everything up in Christ, that He has taken everything that existed and made it matter because of Jesus Christ and that Jews and Gentiles... Go back there here. Jews and Gentiles are together. Now, let me tell you a mistake that sometimes I want to speak to those of us in the room that are um, white Americans, sometimes that we make, sometimes that have been made. You see, it says the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And so this is Paul, a Jewish man, saying that the Gentiles are welcome into it. Sometimes we've kind of made the mistake when we read texts like this, that we as white American Christians are the Jews. And that everybody else are the ethnics and the Gentiles. Can I just tell you something real quickly? There were no white people in Jerusalem. You realize that, right? Do you know who we are in that whole scope when Jesus talks about you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? You know who us white people are? You know who we were? The ends of the earth, like the people farthest away. And so the mistake is making that is saying that somehow the gospel has come for us. And African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanics, you're all welcome too. Now, we may never say that out loud, but sometimes our churches and people have acted that way. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. The point Paul is making is not, hey, look, they get to be a part too." The point he's making is, we're all the same. It does not matter. Joint heirs means that... (laughs) That we all have the same exact inheritance in Christ. Every single one of us, Jew, Gentile, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Arab, every single one of us without Christ are dead in our sins. And only through Him are we made alive again. And when we are, there is no distinction between what we get because of our race. The mystery, he says, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. What he is saying, and this is, this is vitally important again, that the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is taking things that are separate and bringing them together. He is taking you and me and our God who were separated by our sin and Jesus brought us together into union. He is taking sinners and Christ and bringing them together. But it's more than that. He is also taking what was a dividing wall of hostility between groups of people who identified themselves as different races and ethnicities. And he is bringing those groups of people together into one body, into one inheritance, into one Lord. The essence of the gospel is is reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others. And to miss that is to miss the heart of God. I don't know about you. Maybe you're here and you're good and everything's good on this issue and you're fine and all that. But I believe, we're going to talk about the church in a minute, but I believe for individuals who have hatred in their heart or contempt in their heart, or prejudice in their heart towards a member of another ethnicity or race have not had their heart truly transformed by the gospel completely. Because that is the gospel. So the first question is, what is the gospel? What is it? The second question is this. What is the church? In the midst of all of this, what is the church supposed to be? And it's interesting because there are all kinds of description in the New Testament about what the church is. And sometimes we pull those apart from where they are, but Paul gives us a definition of the church here that is directly related and tied to this. Now, listen, this has not been an easy issue ever. This has not been an easy issue, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute, but in the first church, the, the most difficult issue the early church dealt with was the issue of racial Reconciliation. Acts 15 is the turning point of the whole book of Acts. The reason it's the turning point is because they come and they say, all these people that aren't Jews are trying to become Christians. What do we do about that? Do they have to become Jews first and then Christians? And they make the declaration that Christ is changing hearts, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And then, and this is key, Paul doesn't say, all right, then all the Jews, you, you've been saved by Jesus. You go set up your Jewish church over here. And then all you Greeks, you've been saved by Jesus. You go set up your Greek church over here. And all you Cretans, you've been saved by Jesus. You go set up your own church over here, he says they are one body and one church and they are to be together. What is the church? Look at what Paul says in this next part. Of uh, this gospel, the reconciliation of Gentiles, the bringing together what God can only bring together. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. to me, though I am, and look at this Paul who is a Jewish Christian who has every reason to boast about his heritage and where he came from, doesn't. He says, I was the very least of all the saints. Grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light forever in what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He said, my goal was to bring all this message to the Gentiles so that, look at this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's what I want you to see. And this is important. It's a lot. We're going to take a minute to break down this verse because there is lots in that. Here's what I want you to see. The method, the vehicle, the tool that God has used or chosen to use to display the reconciliation that comes through Christ and with each other because of Christ, the tool he wants to use for that is the church. Remember Paul said this mystery that Gentiles are joint heirs, that Gentiles are just with us, that Gentiles are one with us, or in one body. That the church is to be the manifold wisdom, the present wisdom, the thing that is shown, the, the one that the world can see. That when the world looks at the church, they ought to see that God is in the reconciliation business between him and man and between man and man. Anybody follow the uh, shootings in Chattanooga this week. Tragic horrible event. Um, I followed the, the event and then there was a picture, a video actually, that really captured my attention. You may see this video of a pastor or a picture. How many of you saw it? None of you. Good. All right. Uh, but in, Ch- in Chattanooga, there was a, this is a veteran that went to the place where the shooting happened. He kneeled down on the ground and this African-American pastor comes and put his arm around him and begins to pray and comfort him. It struck me for two reasons. First of all, because this is what the church is supposed to be, right? I mean, this is it. It doesn't matter that this guy's white and and this guy's African. It doesn't matter that he's black. This is what church is supposed to be. This is a a man, a man of God, a pastor who is wrapping his arms around someone who is grieving and hurting and doesn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Um, I need to go find a, 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 a white pastor to help you out. Now, it struck me for a second reason. It's because I know this guy. This is Anthony Taylor, and the reason I know this is Anthony Taylor is because Anthony Taylor is Dyersburg High School, class of 1994, which is mine. Anthony and I grew up together, went to elementary school, middle school, high school together. Anthony and I, uh, back in October, so proud. Anthony's uh, a superintendent now for uh, his church over a whole area, Chattanooga area, pastor, great communicator. And it's so fun to hear and to see what God is doing in and through Anthony's life. And I'm so proud of, to be a friend of his, to know him. This past October, we were at the reunion and Anthony walked up and he got there a little late. we were having a party at the, the um, park for the kids and families and all that. And Anthony and I just spent maybe three or four minutes talking. And we were just talking about what it's like to be a pastor. We talked about our congregations. I will not tell you what I said. All right. No, it was all good. Anthony, Anthony's not one of those guys you complain with. We had a good time. We talked about how blessed we were to be the pastors where we are. We talked about how fun it was to pastor. We had conversations about sermons. I was you know, talking about what he, he had just been elected to this position and was moving into that, and we talked about that. And then something pulled us away. And as we're walking away, you know, you just thoughts in your mind sometimes. Apparently y'all don't, but some of us do, all right? Some of us think, all right? As I was walking away, my first thought in my mind was like, Man, why were we not friends like that in school? I mean, Anthony was a guy that I, I, I literally, I think he was in my kindergarten class. Either kindergarten or first grade. I know we had class together. We went through the elementary school together. We had middle school together. We were in high school together. We served on student council together. We were in different organizations together. But Anthony and I weren't really good friends. I was called to ministry before I went into high school. knew I was going to be a pastor from the time I was entering in ninth grade. Anthony was the same way, I think, middle school sometime, maybe a little bit after that. So in high school, we both knew we were going to be pastors. We were both really involved in our church, really involved in Bible study, really involved in what it meant to follow the Lord living in Dyersburg High School. And yet we weren't really friends. As I asked myself the question, why were we not friends? You know the only answer that came to mind, right? Because he's black. And I'm white. And at Dyersburg High School, you didn't do that. And I couldn't help but think of that passage of scripture that talks about that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between ethnicities has been removed. And that we in America, for the last 250 years, have been building it back. Paul says, but the church, God's people, are to be the manifold wisdom of God in the community in which we live. That means we ought to be the examples of what it looks like for racial reconciliation to happen. We ought to be the examples. And yet, when he said it 50 years ago, it was true, and it's still true today. Martin Luther King reminded us that the most segregated hour in American life is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. In America, pastors have been calling out for revival for years. I don't know if you've watched the news lately, but I'll just let you know, it's, it's not here. God's still moving, God's still working, but widespread revival is not here. Can I tell you something, honestly, that God laid on my heart this week and as long as we are not displaying the manifold wisdom of God when it comes to reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ, God is not going to move in our country. And I know for some of us that's a tough issue. It goes back to our heritage. It goes back to who we are. It goes back to where we came from. It goes back to where we were risen, where we were raised. It comes back to the very essence of our being. And yet... When we have been transformed by Jesus Christ, we are new creations. And my heritage doesn't matter in line with my calling to follow Christ. My family is God's family. And wherever people have been saved by the grace of God, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the only agenda and the only cause that calls my life to give itself for it, is the cause of Jesus Christ. Which means, and I believe this, because this is the calling of the church, be a manifold wisdom of God, to display His reconciliation to the world. And something else we'll talk about in a minute. I believe that any church that is not actively pursuing racial reconciliation is denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I come as your pastor today to tell you that I have spent some time with the Lord this week repenting over my leadership and not doing that strongly enough. You see, the goal is not to coexist. The goal is reconciliation, side by side, living together. Worshiping together. Declaring the praises of God together. And here's why I think that is so tough. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. Look, where in the heavenly places? That God's wisdom will display it in earthly churches to heavenly rulers and authorities. Let me ask you a quick question who, who is that? Who's the heavenly rulers and authorities? God is one, and He's in warfare with. Satan. So I want you to get the picture here, okay? So, so what I think this particular verse is talking about is those that are set themselves, spiritual realm people have set themselves against God. So we don't have time to get into the whole theology of angels and demons. Just go with me, all right, on this. So I think what this scripture is teaching is that God is showing his enemies in the spiritual realm That victory is here and that he has won by his church showing what it means for groups of people that would never come together to come together in Christ. That's two implications for that. First of all is this, what this is telling me is that reconciliation between races, reconciliation between peoples, reconciliation between ethnicities, listen, that's not an American problem, that's a worldwide problem, but what it tells me is that is a supernatural event that has to occur, that reconciliation occurs through supernatural events, not through think tanks, not through dialogues, not through sitting down and having conversations with each other, that that kind of reconciliation, true reconciliation, only happens through Jesus Christ, in His love and His mercy and His bringing together what has been separated. Secondly, it tells me that racial reconciliation is an act of spiritual warfare. And the reason it is so hard is because Satan knows that if he can keep us separated, we cannot march together. And can you imagine, can you imagine the power Of the churches in the United States who are committed to Jesus Christ, locking arms hand in hand, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, and declaring that in Christ we are one and that the gospel is our mission. I bet you never thought that when you sang Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. I bet you never imagined that you were chanting a declaration of war on the spiritual realm as you sang. I believe that God is moving in the hearts and the minds and the lives of people. And of churches in this country, he's giving us another opportunity to get this right. So what does that look like? Three things, and then we're done. First of all, what it primarily means for many of us in this room is we need to repent of attitudes and emotions and thoughts that naturally come into our mind. That naturally work themselves out in our actions. We need to repent. Secondly. We need to learn. The Hippocratic oath. Which is. Do no harm. You know what infuriates me? They're not. You know I'm pretty calm. I'm pretty level-headed. I don't get infuriated very often. It infuriates me. When I see. People that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ pouring gasoline on the already burning fires of hatred that come in the discussion of race in our country. A Facebook post here, a sly comment to your kids there, a joke told here, a demanding of our rights and our privileges, and the fire just continues to grow. And we are providing the fuel. Maybe, just maybe, maybe, as believers and followers in Jesus Christ, when incidents happen where our African-American brothers and sisters, where our Hispanic brothers and sisters, where our Asian-American brothers and sisters, for those of us that are speaking out of my own heritage, white American Christians, maybe, It would be good for us to stop before we react and before we talk and before we think and before we just spout out what everybody around us seems to be spouting out and think as followers of Jesus Christ, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Scripture tells me to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Maybe before I go and say something on Facebook about how this and that and all of that, I just stop and think, how can I mourn? I showed that picture of, of, of Anthony praying with the guy and uh, he was interviewed on Fox News and I watched um, the interview on Fox News. And uh, they asked him, Did you, you were a pastor, so you, you saw this young man and you probably knew him and went and prayed with him. He said, I, I didn't know who he was. And he goes, it's not because I'm a pastor, I'm a human. He said, I saw a fellow human being hurting. And I went to comfort. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Do no harm. Step back on your defense of what you think is your heritage and your right and your legacy. And remember that the only thing that matters is the cause of Christ in the first place. And then lastly, this is it. Actively pursue reconciliation in your life and through your church. Make it a point. What does that mean, Pastor? I don't have it all figured out yet for me. But I know he's calling me. Actively pursue reconciliation. We're in a moment of response in just a moment, and maybe for you today is just step one. Repentance is what needs to happen. Your pride's sitting there telling you, "Don't go down there." Everybody know what you're going down there for. Perhaps today God's calling you because the first step for you is to step out in public and to come and to pray here at the altar, or to come and speak to me. Don't worry about what man thinks; you worry about what God thinks. Maybe you need to come and just pray, repent of attitudes and actions and thoughts that have been in your life. Secondly, maybe you're here and you've been one of those that's done harm. And you want to pray that God will just give you wisdom not to do that anymore. Thirdly, maybe you're here and you just need to pray. And perhaps that's all of us that just need to pray that God would allow us to be actively involved in reconciliation. For the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. Band's going to come play. You respond however God leads you. Let's pray together.